Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me this morning, and we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 through 22, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 24. That's printed in your bulletin, um, but also we love it when people bring their Bibles. Um, in this section in particular, Paul is going to be honing in on the concept of the Lord's Supper. Now, while that might not you know, seem like, especially in our day, a, a great way to really stir a crowd, um, what Paul is actually getting at by honing in on the nature of this sacrament of God is actually Paul is calling us to this. In this section, Paul is giving us the Christian call to a counter-cultural fellowship. A Christian call to the counter-culture fellowship. We're about to take up and read, but before we do, let us ask for the Lord's help in prayer. O Christ, our King, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we gather now as your people, coming together in desperate need to fellowship with our King by his Spirit. And so now, O Lord, feed your people with your word and with your sacrament that our souls might be nourished, that we might be refreshed, and that we might see your beauty all the more clearly. Give us now eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse 15. I speak... As to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. So first and foremost, Paul is giving the Corinthian church a Christian call to counter-cultural fellowship. And we see this first in the first main section. He calls them to be counter-cultural in their fellowship with God. He's calling them to be counter-cultural in their fellowship with God. A bit of background will, will be helpful here. So uh, th- this context that uh, the, the Corinthian church is in is a deeply and wildly polytheistic culture. I mean, there's just a pantheon of gods everywhere, and that's, that's part of you know, sort of the Roman culture is, is to have you know, all of these, these different gods, and it was socially acceptable and not even just acceptable, um, but encouraged that people will worship as many deities as possible. And again, if... You're living in that society. Why wouldn't you? Uh, the more deities that you worship and serve, I guess the better your chances increase of having the gods work in your favor. But um, there's also this reality, too, that if you were, let's say, in this culture to do something like this, I refuse to worship the pantheon of gods. It's not only that you're a weirdo at that point, it's, it's also the fact that you're a social outcast. You, you, are, you have cut yourself off from so much of the societal center of the culture of their day that you are a complete and total outcast. You refuse to worship the gods like everybody else. And there, there were lots and lots of festivals built around the, the worship of these various deities at different seasons and whatnot. And to cut yourself off from that is to be a social outcast to the furthest extent. Now then, also where we're at in this section, Paul has one long argument going all the way back to chapter 8 where he's speaking of you know, a people living in this sort of society. How is it that you, as a Christian, are supposed to be living in a culture that is rampant with idolatry, especially um, even in the things that you eat? And he gives them caution to say, be careful. Don't flirt with idolatry 
if at all possible. But where we fast forward to now, Paul brings up this. Here's the core issue. Your fellowship matters. Your fellowship matters. Paul will expound this further. He's like, you know, idols are nothing. We've established that. That's true. They're just sticks and stones and gold embossed trinkets. True. But there's a very sinister reality behind the idols. While those idols are made with human hands, what's actually lying behind them? What's actually lying behind them is demonic. Paul will even bring that up. Verses 20 and 21. No, I imply that pagans, what they sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Going so far as to even say, uh, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. But here's, here's probably the Corinthians thinking. Right? Uh, we know that, that we worship the one true God. Uh, we worship the triune God and that there is no other God. We've got that. We've established that. But, but here's what we can do. We can, we can have that theology that's, that's driving us, and, and we, can, we can do this somewhat privately underground. And, and since we know that these idols, they're not real gods, it's, it's okay for me to keep showing up to these festivals. It, they're harmless. And therefore, I get to keep my old ways. I don't have to leave anything behind. The old me doesn't have to die. I don't have to lose anything to follow Jesus now. Paul will regularly bring up that this is a flawed argument. There's this word running throughout uh, this passage in particular that um, is sometimes translated uh, fellowship, it's sometimes translated participate, um, can be even translated commune. Um, but, but it's this idea that, that here you are, and regardless if you like it or not, you're participating in something everywhere. And he uses a variety of different illustrations. The first illustration that he uses is the Lord's Supper itself. You know, he, he's talking about this in verse 16 and 17. He says, that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Is it, are, we, are we not participating in the blood of Jesus when we come to this cup? Are we not fellowshipping with Jesus? Are we not communing with him when we come to this table? Paul says, of course you are. That's the whole point. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, I will expound this wonderfully. It, it'll pick up on this in chapter 27. It says, worthy receivers do inwardly by faith really and indeed spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. This is a, a really wonderful and beautiful thing. And Paul is using it as an illustration here to expound something, but just take a minute to think about this reality. 
that spiritually and really and actually, when we come to this table, what are we doing? We're, we're fellowshipping with Jesus. He's not the God who is far off out there, but he's the God who meets his people by his spirit at his table. And we participate with him there. But Paul will go on. He uses a second illustration. Uh, the illustration of Israel and their sacrifices. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Uh, sacrifices and altar are the same word in Greek. It's just kind of a different reference or a different usage of the, the same core word. Uh, are you not participants in the sacrifices when you go to the place of sacrifice? Once again, he's using this illustration to say there is a real and actual participation that goes on even in supernatural things, spiritual things, such as the Lord's table or the sacrifices of Israel. So Paul here is expounding this, but what he's really getting at, the core here, is to say you must Guard yourself from the temples that society demands you come and worship. And it wouldn't take very much convincing for anybody in this room that the temple our society demands us to come and worship in is the temple of sexuality. It's the same temple as Romans chapter 1. And Paul will make abundantly clear that those idols are every bit as demonic as the ones here in 1 Corinthians. His call to us from that temple is this, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As the societal pressures are building against Christians everywhere to go and to worship in this temple or be outcast. Paul's call to us is to flee from that. Flee to the merciful, gentle, healing Savior who binds up the wounds inflicted by the entrapments of Satan. But let us not also forget, there are many, many other temples that we're so prone to wander into. There are many other demonic idols that we are regularly pressured to come and to worship. One in particular, James chapter 3. James will write this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. This is an idol that Christians don't talk about nearly enough. This is a demonic temple that believers often leave untouched in our repentance. The temple of bitter jealousy, 
and selfish ambition, of boasting and of lies. Brothers and sisters, Paul's call to us is the same. Flee from that idol. Flee to the merciful, gentle, and healing Savior who binds up the wounds inflicted by the entrapments of Satan. But this brings us really to Paul's second call for us in particular, a countercultural call in our fellowship with each other. We see this primarily in chapter 11, 17 through 24. Now, again, a little bit of background. We've kind of shifted gears between chapters 10 and 11. Paul, in chapter 10, is talking about uh, the worship in the idolatrous temple of his day, where we come to now in chapter 11, he's getting a little bit more at what's actually going on in the church. And Paul, especially when it comes to this particular issue, is very disheartened. Um, At at this point in the Corinthian church, there's uh, a, a regular set norm throughout the church, even from its earliest days, that regularly Christians gather together, and it's by most accounts, uh, a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. But also what we see that tying to this weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper is actually a full meal. They would gather together and fellowship uh, quite extensively. Sometimes this is called by those in the early church. uh, The love feast where brothers and sisters in Christ gather together and sit down and share food at a family table and then come to the Lord's table and partake of this blessed sacrament. But there are a number of different things that make this very meal deeply countercultural. First and foremost, it was celebrated on the first day of the week in a Jewish calendar system, a seven-day week. The Romans didn't operate out of a seven-day week. They operated out of a ten-day week. Also, to kind of further make things awkward... Within the church, there are massive distinctions in socioeconomic um, conditions. You would have some in the early church who were very, very wealthy, and you would have others who were very, very poor. Slaves, in fact. And and so this gathering together uh, uh, of a vast different group of people on a completely different calendar than the rest of the society in and of itself, is a deeply countercultural thing. But what had snuck into the church of Corinth is a lot of the policies that had come with the various feasts of their day. In the, the Roman system, to throw a feast and to share this meal was somewhat of a, a polite gesture, but it was also an opportunity for upward mobility. It was a way to flex and to show off and hopefully to make the right friends in order that you can be powerful in somebody. Think every Jane Austen book ever. It's a very similar cultural situation. And so here they have in what's supposed to be a unifying feast where brothers and sisters, regardless of their situation in life or their condition, are gathering together to celebrate a meal and to say, There's no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And what has happened now? It's become an opportunity 
to move up in the world, to gather together with my tribe, or at least the tribe that I want to be a part of. What about those others over there? Well, I guess they can get their own tribe. They can get their own group together and do their own thing, I suppose. Paul's rebuke is harsh. He goes so far as to say this. I hear that there are divisions among you. He uses a couple different Greek words for divisions, but they're very, very strong words that fly in the face of them. And he'll say this. It would have been better for you. It is not for the better, but for the worse that you gather together. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Their divisions and their schisms have gone so deep that their factions and their divisions have now completely undermined the whole point of their gathering together. And Paul says, it would be better if you just didn't get together. These schisms, these divisions, the way that you've divided yourself is so bad, you should probably just stay home. Which is a lofty thing, because what does the church do? We come together. And Paul will make regular mention, when you come together, this happens. When you come together as the church, I hear there are divisions among you. The church has so undermined itself that they have actually definitionally lost their way. Paul is calling them to be definitionally who they are, Christ's body. But it's tough to be Christ's body when you're split in two or five or 15. And notice here too, Paul is not simply coming to them and saying, you know, your theology of the Lord's Supper is really, really bad. Actually, you know, Paul, back in the previous chapter, chapter 10, the way that he's using the Lord's Supper as an illustration does seem to imply that their theology of the Lord's Supper is pretty good. They have a pretty robust view of what this is. What Paul's actually getting at is he's saying, it's not so much that your theology is bad, it's you've lost your identity. You're not the body of Christ anymore. You... You come together, but you don't come together as the church. You gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper, but what has it become? It's just become another social club where you eat and drink too much. You've lost your way. And even that language of coming together, that's consummate language. You're supposed to gather together that the many might become one. And now this has been completely undermined. The church's consummate act has now been perverted by its division. Now, Paul, coming to this picture, wants them to stop and step back and see the beauty of what happens at the Lord's Supper. And if we'll, we'll stop to just think about this, I mean, just imagine the, the truth, the reality of this, that, that the one corporate body made up of diverse people from different aspects are gathering together 
and partaking of one bread and one cup and really and truly and actually being joined together by one spirit to the one Lord. That there is a real thing that takes place when we gather together to this table. That we who have largely nothing in common, especially the Corinthian church, they have nothing in common. And yet in that moment, they are supernaturally bound together indivisibly as one. As my friend Logan Peck says, that's bananas. That's, that's beautiful. That's wonderful that the diverse and the different become unified as the one. And Paul wants us to see that this supernatural union is far, far greater than any difference this world could possibly present to the body of Christ. You are different than me, but being gathered together here at this table is far greater than that difference. You have different opinions than me, but this table is far greater than that difference. You have a different background, a different culture even. But this table takes those who are worlds apart and makes them one. That's astounding. It is a beautiful dance that makes no sense to the world around us, and yet it's so true. Now then, we do have a bit of a problem. Sinful people come to this table. And when sinful people gather to this dance, regularly what happens is we step on each other's toes. But Paul doesn't leave us there to say, well, figure it out. Just get over yourself. Be nicer. Paul actually calls us to this. Though you're divided, here, O oh church, is where you cast your eyes. Here is the core of your unity. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's the core of our unity as a church? It's this, that the king of kings who was betrayed still gives. That the fires of betrayal and division and schism, from that comes a body of one because he gave his. And it's out of that reality, out of the, the sacrifice of Christ that makes us one, that we therefore gather together at this table and say, I love without reserve because he loved without reserve. I give without reserve because he gave without reserve. I forgive my brothers and sisters without reserve because he forgives without reserve. I come to be unified to this body because he came 
and gave that we would be. It's at this table that may his bride be made beautifully whole and that all the world would see the glory of the Savior who takes the many and makes them beautifully and indivisibly one. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Christ, we come to you who has taken sinful and selfish and broken people and you have made us one body and you've given us one spirit and we gather now at one table and so Lord we pray unify us in a way that only you can do bind our hearts together that there wouldn't be many sitting in these pews now but that we as the one body would sit before your throne through your spirit. May we cast our eyes to you. May you bind up the brokenhearted. May you nourish our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.